Hello, and welcome to the Honest Politics Podcast. My name is Alex Gamsik, and I am the founder of Honest Politics, LLC. My company does high-level political consulting, but not for politicians. My services are catered to everyday Americans just like you and me. So let's get started. Today's podcast will be coverage of an academic article that compares China and Taiwan in their response to the SARS epidemic in 2003. And using lessons from that, we can observe how to respond to the COVID-19 epidemic that's currently happening. Before we start this, I want you to remember that authoritarianism can be thought of as on a spectrum with democracy, with democracy on one side, authoritarianism on the other, and many countries somewhere in between. Of course, it's a little more complicated, but this is the easiest way to look at it. Usually countries like America and the UK and France fall on the democracy side, whereas countries like China, Russia, and North Korea fall on the authoritarian side. This paper looks at Taiwan, which is a, on the democracy side, versus China, which is on the authoritarian side, compares how they handled the SARS epidemic, and sees, you know, there's an advantage that authoritarian governments have, and how can democracies make up for that when they're responding to epidemics. So let's start with some information on Taiwan. It's a small, densely populated, democratic, wealthy, and knowledge-based economy country. China is also has pockets of dense population. It's not democratic. It's communist one-party rule. Um, it's not as well-roundedly wealthy, but it's accelerating its economy very fast, and there are huge pockets of wealth. A lot of manufacturing, so not as much reliant on knowledge-based economy, maybe, as Taiwan. And it's also, China's a vast, huge country. If you look at China, they did a great job containing the SARS outbreak compared to Taiwan, which did not. So the author first looks at the difference between routine crises and novel crises. Routine crises is like a fire or a flood. Like political leaders can say, hey, you police department or fire department, you've handled this many times before, so I'll let you deal with it. But a novel crisis is when you have little past experience with this kind of crisis, something like 9-11 or the COVID-19 outbreak. There's very little precedent for it, which makes it more dangerous in many ways. The article says the danger lies in the likelihood that the leadership will fail to recognize the insidious crisis as a crisis because it develops only slowly and seems amenable to existing response strategies. But like we see with the COVID-19 outbreak, nothing we've done in the past is able to stop this kind of outbreak. So the article went on to say that leadership should quickly identify challenges, engage relevant bureaucracies, implement a response, communicate the nature of the crisis and response effectively and clearly to the public, control the message as it's being broadcast by the media to the public. This all has to happen in a constrained time frame under very high stress, which means that governments often fail. And all of this is harder to do in a democracy. Authoritarian governments can more easily control messaging to the public, and they do not have to cut through competing bureaucracies. This paper looks and sees if this authoritarian advantage, meaning centralizing decision-making power, increasing support for uh, government initiatives, and the government's ability to shape the tone of the crisis in the mass media, if this advantage overpowers democracies and how democracies can work around that advantage. 
the leadership has a lot of responsibility here. And it might be easier for an authoritarian government because they already have so much control over the messaging and the implementation of policies. It can be easier for them to quickly roll out a response. This is a common thing with democracies, like the U.S. Constitution puts a lot of checks and balances on systems, so it takes a long time for policies to go through usually. But something like the SARS, I mean, the, yeah, the SARS outbreak or COVID, you want rapid responses. There's no time to deliberate in the Senate for three years on the best policy. It has to go now, which makes it harder in a democracy because authoritarian governments already have those quick controlled responses. So back to the paper, Taiwan claimed that its response to the SARS outbreak was lackluster due to a lack of membership in international public health organizations like the World Health Organization, which does not recognize Taiwan as its own country. Taiwan and China have this feud going on where China thinks that Taiwan is part of China, Taiwan thinks it's independent. A lot of countries around the globe either recognize or don't recognize this, and it's just a confusing mess of jurisdiction. So the World Health Organization takes the side that Taiwan is part of China, which they say made the SARS epidemic worse. In this paper, we'll see if that's right. So SARS was first identified in China in November 2002. Taiwan identified it in March 2003, and then had the worst um, outbreak relative to its country. The first two outbreaks in Taiwan, there was a one wave that was contact traced and it was heavily monitored. And then a second wave involved community spread a few weeks later, which was much less controlled. And we'll learn more about these two outbreaks right after this message break. Taiwan thinks that this second wave of community spread came from one super spreader who gave it to two dozen people at a laundry facility in a hospital. That transmission from that wave ended in July, and it ended with 346 cases and 37 deaths. Um, I also want to point out real quick, that might seem tiny compared to the numbers with COVID-19. COVID-19 spreads very fast, and it's less detectable than SARS, and it's less deadly than SARS. And the thing with a virus is if it's more deadly, it kills the host quick and gives the host less time to pass it to other people. So sometimes a virus being deadly is not good for the spread of the virus. Anyway, some history of Taiwan, looking at their healthcare system. So first you have the primary department of health that reports to the executive Juan, which is a Chinese head of government organization. And then you have the local level. There's two health departments into the two municipalities as well as bureaus in 23 county and city governments. Local levels implement the higher Department of Health policies. So you have the one Department of Health with Chinese government agents, and then all of the local health departments implementing those policies. In the 1980s, Taiwan shifted from preventative medicine to curative medicine because it makes more money, which helps with economic growth. This shift from preventative medicine to curative medicine eroded the pandemic response capabilities. Because if you're focused on treating illnesses after they happen, it's much more difficult to cure um, a pandemic than if you just prevented this communication of diseases in the first place. 
With SARS, Taiwan established a central control center and local epidemic command centers. They also had an advisory committee of experts that would meet every day. Taiwan passed an act allowing a lot of crackdown measures and even quarantined over 130,000 people. You also received money from the government if you complied with the quarantine, and they also gave psychological support and child care through the government to people in quarantine. Physicians and nurses who worked to care for SARS patients got money. More compensation if you actually contracted the disease. If a parent died trying to cure SARS for other people, then the child's college tuition was paid for. Education was the main mechanism with which Taiwan tried to control the outbreak. Education was the main mechanism rather than compulsory prevention and control for trying to get this outbreak under control. Taiwan also had daily press conferences. They had website and pamphlets and advertisements. They also had a hotline for people who had fevers. Some more history. Both China and Taiwan had good health measures early in their history. Then a transition from commutative diseases to chronic conditions. So, so basically this means that first people were dying from the common cold and the flu like crazy because we didn't have advanced medicine and hygiene yet. And then um, once we started being able to control those curable diseases, we got chronic conditions like diabetes, uh, heart attacks and hypertension, stuff like that. That's a worldwide thing. As soon as countries start beefing up their healthcare systems, they start to have more chronic conditions. Um, China is a Leninist one-party system. Taiwan is a vibrant multi-party democracy. The WHO praised Taiwan's National Health Insurance Program, which was established in the 1995, and this basically gave everyone healthcare. China's healthcare system is so bad, the author compared it to parts of Africa. Taiwan had some advantages before this crisis that should have made them more prepared. Taiwan had time to prepare for the SARS epidemic, but China did not. Both China and Taiwan have great physicians, but China has them concentrated in cities rather than out in the vast rural areas. China had about 5,000 cases and 530 deaths from SARS, but Taiwan had more cases per capita. There's a thing called the case fatality ratio, which is described by the World Health Organization as the ratio of deaths within a designated population of people with a particular condition over a certain period of time. China's case fatality ratio was 7. The global case fatality ratio was 9.6, so you can see China did a better job controlling it. And Taiwan, it was 11, so Taiwan did worse than the global average. Now some differences in the government structure in terms of centralized decision-making powers. China was able to re-centralize power and all local governments had clear chains of command up to the center of power. But in Taiwan there were different committees established with poor communication and lines of command between them, so local governments had to act independently. Many different move units were moving on their own and political considerations made everything slow moving, so there was no unified message. China developed uniform hospital procedures and helped prevent them from being overrun like in Taiwan. In China, healthcare workers were not allowed to leave their workspace for three months, which basically means if you were a nurse in China, you had to stay at the hospital. And at the hospital, they'd provide you with all your room and board and food and stuff. In Taiwan, 
you didn't have that kind of control. So there was a lot of disobedience and resistance. Uh, there was a major story actually about how they tried to quarantine people in a closed hospital, but people were jumping over the fences and escaping because they didn't want to follow what the government was telling them. Public support for government initiatives is very different in the two countries. In China, the confidence in the government is 96.7%. In Taiwan, it's 69.7% which is still pretty high, but it shows you that people of Taiwan have much less confidence in their government than they do in China. One of the problems was that the government of Taiwan feared alienating voters with a heavy response. So they did not respond as quickly and effectively as they could have. They were taking political considerations into account, knowing that these people would be voting them in and out next year. China, on the other hand, was able to mobilize the public without this fear of the voter, because they're always going to be in power no matter what. Then we look at the government shift of tone in the mass media. Taiwan has a more free press than China does, but the public has less confidence in that press than it does in China, where everything is controlled by the ruling party. So in Taiwan, sensationalism is used when private companies are competing in the news industry. Rumors are propagated through the news, and people panic and lose their trust in the media because of these competitors trying to use sensationalism to get more clicks and more views. However, not being recognized by the WHO meant that there were no workshops, there were no very little equipment or virus samples given from the WHO to Taiwan. But the author contends that that wasn't a huge deal because the WHO did offer some outreach efforts and everything was available on their website, and it did not stop the mass confusion and lack of coordination in Taiwan's response to the crisis. So more help would have been better, but the main fault with this response was Taiwan, not the WHO. So the authoritarian advantage, this author says, is real in a pandemic, but this would be, but it would be impractical and unpalatable to implement an authoritarian government in current democracies just to stop pandemics. You're not gonna turn America into a dictatorship just because of a pandemic. So to overcome the centralized decision-making deficit, local leaders should like understand their place and there needs to be better advanced planning from the top down when responding to this kind of crisis. In terms of public support, civil society actors who are more trusted than the government like churches should be advancing information. And you're seeing this with the COVID-19 response. You're seeing celebrities and all kinds of other people who might be trusted more. They're telling people to wash their hands and everything. So sometimes using non-government measures will help as well. And then in the mass media, perhaps this author says you could create one disaster media outlet, which is only activated in emergencies to broadcast a unified message just have one apolitical spokesperson who would not be giving speculation, who would not be giving random interviews. They would just be reporting on the best of the best information. And it would let people know to be flexible in their information because it'll all change as the pandemic evolves. So you've been seeing some conflicting information on whether tests are useful, contact tracing, um, how many ventilators do we need now we have enough hospital beds but it, this apolitical spokesperson would be telling people that's okay, stuff does change in the middle of this changing situation. 
Um, so that was just something he said would help overcome the democratic deficit in the mass media. Because democracies do have to compensate for an authoritarian advantage when it comes to responding to emergencies of a novel nature like the coronavirus outbreak. I'd like to do a little discussion because I found this article to be really interesting. I mean, if you look at democracies versus authoritarian governments, obviously I'm a fan of democracies because it means rule by the people as opposed to rule by an authority. And people want to be free. Personal liberty is a good thing. We don't want to live under a king or under a dictatorship where all of our moves are uh, dictated by somebody else. You have to understand, though, that democracies rule by people with checks and balances leads to slowness in the system. So when there's an emergency like a COVID-19 outbreak, you need leaders that are very competent and strong enough in their messaging and in their engagement with other parts of the federal, local, and state governments that they can overcome the deficits that democracies have when dealing with pandemics or other critical emergencies that we've never seen before. If you look at news stories about Taiwan after the SARS epidemic, they obviously took a lot of this advice to heart. And their COVID-19 outbreak right now is about as severe as their SARS outbreak was, which actually is a huge success for Taiwan because, like I mentioned before, uh, COVID-19 is much faster spreading than SARS ever was. The fact that Taiwan has a better control over it means that they quickly engaged relevant bureaucracies, they strengthened leadership at the top, they have more uniform messaging, and the public has a greater sense of confidence in the government to actually take care of this issue. And it's important that the government take care of it because having COVID-19 is a negative externality, which in public policy speak means that you having it causes bad effects for other people, and that's not accounted for in the private market. Walmart's not going to scan you on your way into the store and quarantine you if they see that you have it. What's going to happen is the government needs to intervene in the private markets because private industry can't take care of a virus on its own. Um, you're seeing the public health care systems need help from the government to take care of this crisis, just as it happened with the SARS epidemic, or you're going to have a situation like the Spanish flu in 1918 where it was just allowed to run rampant because we had no modern medicine yet. So I hope you learned something in this little talk here. I'm going to leave the citation to this paper in the description, and you can check out the author's website. He has written a lot of other, a lot of other articles if you have any questions or concerns or comments, you can email me at alex at honestpoliticsllc.com or you could look up Honest Politics LLC on social media and you'll find me. Send me a message. Thank you so much for listening to the Honest Politics Podcast. My name's Alex Gamsik, and I hope to see you next time as we discover more of the stories behind the statistics.